0: ...danger and destruction to a large number of people. And in the age of terrorism, I think this is a better conceptualization of threat than to simply view it as an impending harm or danger. A threat also in the age of terrorism can be viewed as an event or a process that has the capacity to alter a people's way of life. And if we can recall after the terrorist attacks on the U.S. September 11, 2001, President Bush made several references to this aspect of threat that what the Islamic fundamentalists were trying to do was to destroy the U.S. way of life. So in that way we can conceptualize threat as an event or a process that has the capacity or potential to alter in a fundamental way, uh, people's way of life. And in the contemporary international system, uh, states are faced with numerous uh, threats. Uh, As political scientists, we always make the point that the first duty of the state is the protection of its citizens. This therefore means if the state is to carry out its obligation of protecting its citizens properly, it must be able to assess threats that to face its citizens. It also has a duty to devise policies and strategies with which to counter any perceived threat threats. And it must have the capacity to correctly perceive the threats in the first place before the policies to counter the threats can be enacted. And finally, the state has a duty to recognize the dynamics of threats. And I'm saying this because threats tend to change from time to time, uh, from one geographical specificity to the other. So it is still the duty of the state to be able to recognize the dynamic aspects uh, of threats. And the problem for states in the contemporary international system is that there are many dimensions uh, to threats. Our threats are not just a simple event or a process. They are complex and they are multiple. Also, we exist in a radically changing global environment. So the nature of threats in the contemporary international system also tends to evolve very rapidly. So states then have to contend with this rapidly changing international environment. But also to complicate the matter further, Threats in the contemporary international system are interconnected, and no state, no matter how powerful, can deal with all threats all by itself. It is true that more powerful states, richer states, have greater capacities for dealing with threats, but it is not possible for any single state to be able to anticipate to deal with all manner of threats all at the same time. And again, another complication with contemporary threats in the international system is that there may be no geographical specificity to threats. In the era of the Cold War, the United States could say the threat to its national security interests were coming from the Soviet Union. So there was a geographical location to that particular threat. But today, how do you put a geographical location uh, to... To, uh, to the birds, uh, uh influenza? How do you put geographical specificity uh, to individuals who have the capacity to cause a uh, great danger? And also, another complicating factor is that threats today emanate not just from states, but also from non state actors. In fact, as I will argue later, the perception here in the United States now is that non state actors like uh, terrorists, are even more dangerous than state actors are. And finally, a complicating factor to threats in the contemporary international system is that threats are multidimensional. Uh, in 2004, the United Nations Secretary General, Kofi then uh, set up a high-level panel to examine uh, threats and how the international community uh, could respond respond to threats and the panel issued a report which argued that in the contemporary international system there are six types or categories of threats. The panel said there are economic and social threats which it identifies as poverty, infectious diseases, environmental degradation, then interstate conflict, Internal conflict examples cited by the report included civil wars, genocide, and other atrocities. Then terrorism is a whole category by itself. And finally, transnational organized crime. Now what this report did is to draw our attention to many of the elements of contemporary threats, the multidimensionality of it, the interconnectedness of threats, and so on and so forth, but also to recognize that non-state actors (coughs) have become quite active as sources of threats. Now, what I want to do is to highlight some of the changes that have occurred in the way the United States perceives our threats in the aftermath of the September 11 terrorist attack on the U.S. The first is that that attack altered the geography of threats from the way the United States saw it. As I mentioned earlier, no longer was the Soviet Union, the so-called evil empire viewed as the geography where threat to the United States will originate. Uh, President Bush and other top US government officials said Islamic fundamentalists, the ter- terrorists who had en- launched the attack on the US were literally everywhere. So there was now no longer any geographical limit. They didn't know where the terrorists would come from. And they could uh, wear shoes and board airplanes and set of bombs. They could carry liquid into aircraft and use that to mix explosives inside the aircraft and so on and so forth. Uh, but similarly, in the United States, there was a transformation in the ranking of threats After that, Americans began to view terrorism as the most formidable threat facing the United States. There was also a recognition of the role that non-state actors can play as the greatest uh, danger facing the United States. And there was also a sense in this country that geography could no longer protect the United States uh, from threats. The US had delighted in the fact that it was geographically far removed from the porous of the Europeans, that the US was protected by the oceans. Uh, but the events of September 2001 showed that geography could no longer serve as a defensive shield for the United States against threats. Uh, finally, the US recognized at least from my analysis of speeches made by U.S. political leaders that the contemporary threat is not only a danger to the physical existence of the United States and therefore a war that could be waged on the battlefield, but that the danger in extremist ideology is that it is both a physical danger and also an ideological danger and President Bush emphasized over and over that the United States has to engage the terrorists, even in the struggle over the minds. So it was both a battle on the battlefield, a war on the battlefield, and also a war of the minds. Uh, that's the belief that the Islamic terrorists had the capacity to be able to influence people through their ideology, and therefore use such people as food soldiers to launch various types of attacks on the US. Now, the 2009 National Intelligence Strategy of the US has clearly identified what it considers to be the main threats facing the US. And I have divided this into three groups. The first are states that are said to pose one type of danger to the US or the other. Then the second are groups, and the third are factors that could pose danger. High on the list of states that the U.S. considers to be a threat to its national interest, is North Korea, and here the U.S. made it very clear. There are two ways in which North Korea constitutes a threat to the U.S. First uh, is possession and determination to acquire even more nuclear weapons and other weapons of mass destruction. Secondly, the US is afraid of the erratic behavior of the North Korean leadership. So the possession of nuclear weapons plus the erratic behavior of the North Korean leadership are considered the threats that emanate from North Korea. Iran, it's ranked second, in terms of the states that the U.S. considers to be a threat to its national security interest. And for Iran, the U.S. identifies its attempts to acquire uh, weapons of mass destruction, specifically (laughs) nuclear weapons, and also its support of terrorists as the two ways in which Iran constitutes a danger. China, the U.S. does acknowledge that there are many areas of commonality between the U.S. and China. But it's afraid of China on two fronts. One, the modernization of the Chinese military. And secondly, the competition with China over natural resources. And then finally, Russia. Uh, For (laughs) Russia, again here, the National Intelligence Strategy Uh, praises Russia for cooperating with the United States on a number of major international issues, but does recognize uh, that Russia remains a competitor of the U.S. Then for groups, the, the strategy recognizes three types of groups. One are violent extremists, second are insurgents, and third are transnational criminal organizations. And the threats posed by these are obvious, so I will not have to identify where they are. Then the third set of threats in the U.S. are what I refer to as factors, and these include the global economic crisis and the danger here, according to the U.S., is that it has the potential of weakening the economic strength of the United States. Uh, The U.S. is also afraid that the global economic crisis can be used as irrational uh, by people who hate the U.S. as a way of launching attacks on the U.S. Climate change is also identified as a threat. (coughs) Energy competition, uh, it's another threat. rapid technological change. Here the U.S. argues that rapid technological change has both positive and warring elements. And finally, pandemic diseases. Uh, let me say a few things about transnational terrorist movement. Much of my discussion here will focus on religious tra- uh, terrorist movement. Uh, the United States, as I mentioned earlier, considers uh, extremist uh, ideologies to be a threat to the US with a particular focus on uh, extremist Islamic ideology. Although the U.S. has gone on to point out that Islamic extremists are not the only extremists that are worrisome to the U.S. and also that the U.S. is not at war with Islam itself but with a band of people who misuse and misinterpret the Islamic religion. Now, why the U.S. considers extremist ideology to be a threat are quite numerous. Uh, they include the belief by the United States that such extremist groups are fueled by a radical ideology of hatred, oppression, and murder. And secondly, that the threat posed by such group is global in scope. That the people who belong to these organizations are very ruthless. They are willing to use all sorts of weapons uh, at their disposal, including, the U.S. argues, if they have access to weapons of mass destruction, they will not hesitate to use such weapons. And the U.S. considers such groups to be a threat because of their potential to challenge not just U.S. allies, but U.S. interests worldwide. And the U.S. also argues that such groups, particularly the Islamic ones, tend to pervert Islam for nefarious purposes. So here again, what the U.S. government believes is that groups like Al-Qaeda that claim to be fighting on behalf of Islam are the apostates. They are not really true believers of Islam. They are simply using Islam to further their nefarious political purposes. So in effect, as they will say in Nigeria, they bastardize the religion. And so they are not true believers, but simply people who use the opportunity provided by their religious beliefs, not only to uh, pervert the religion, but then to turn the religion around and use it uh, to harm uh, other people. And in this way then, they use Islam to serve the violent political vision. And the U.S. government believes that the aim of Islamic extremist terrorist group is to establish a single pan-Islamic totalitarian state. In fact, the 2009 National Intelligence Strategy argues that they want to establish a totalitarian Islamic state that will stretch from Spain all the way to Southeast Asia. And finally, that they are traitors to their fate. The faith here being uh, Islam. Uh, we can also single out some of the specific ways in which such movements are viewed as threatening uh, to the United States. One is that they hate the United States and what it stands for. The speech that President Bush made uh, to Congress uh, a week after nine days, nine days after the September. 11, 2010 uh, typifies this. The President Bush turned, he, he turned to members of Congress and said, why did they attack us? They attack us for what you represent. They hate democracy, they hate our freedom, and that's why they attack us. So here the danger then is that it is what the U.S. represents, democracy, freedom equality, etc. that the Islamic terrorists are against. And that they are willing to use indiscriminate <coughs> violence, and they are indifferent to human life. So not only do they believe in an ideology that is antithetical to US interests, they are willing to employ all manner of strategies including indifference to human life as a way of achieving their objectives. And that there are a threat to global peace and prosperity. So they are not just threats to the United States, they are also a threat to the international community as a whole. But not only that, that they seek to divide Muslims and non-Muslims. And even within Islam, that they aim to divide Muslims among themselves. So in effect, they are the enemies of everybody. They are the enemies of their religion, they are the enemies of uh, their geographical uh, space. They are the enemies of the United States. And they are also a danger to American global prominence. So in effect, what they are doing is challenging the global prominence of the United States. Now, what about failed states? How do they constitute threats uh, to the U.S.? Well, three main ways. One is the belief that Failed states and ungoverned spaces uh, can provide safe havens uh, to terrorists. So here, terrorists will be able to operate uh, freely. And since terrorists constitute a threat to the United States, the geographical space in which they can operate freely itself then becomes a danger to the United States. And secondly, that failed states and ungoverned spaces could provide terrorists with access Is possible, to weapons of mass destruction. And finally, that terrorists are able to capitalize on failed states and ungoverned spaces to cause or exacerbate starvation, genocide, and environmental degradation. But how are threats generally perceived, either here in the United States or elsewhere? What I have done here is to identify Some factors that tend to shape how cultures, nations, sometimes even individuals, perceive certain things as threats. Uh, History and the past behavior of the threatening entity is a good guide. In other words, you simply look at the past behavior of the entity you consider to be a threat, and then you make your conclusion That entity behaved very badly in the past, it has constituted a danger in the past, it still has the potential for doing so now and in the future. Therefore, it was a threat in the past and it's still currently a threat. Uh, A second way of perceiving threat is to assume intentions to the threatening entity. And we see a good illustration of this with the current U.S. relationship with Iran. Despite denials by the Iranian government that it is not trying to acquire nuclear weapons, the U.S. government insists that that's exactly what the Iranian government is trying to do. So here, the U.S. is presuming intentions into the Iranian government with respect to the acquisition of nuclear weapons. And also it is believed that certain political cultures are by definition threatening. And we see this very clearly in two respects. During the Cold War, totalitarianism was viewed by the United States as a political culture that was threatening in and of itself. It was incompatible with democracy. And what made uh, totalitarianism threatening was simply the nature of totalitarianism. So in that way, it is the political culture of totalitarianism that makes it a threat. Now, some political scientists have even gone far to extrapolate from that, to come up with the so-called democratic peace thesis. The idea that democracy is on the basis of the political culture of democracy do not initiate aggression against other democracies. And so that thesis itself springs from the notion that it is political culture that can be used as an explanatory framework uh, for certain types of behavior in this case threats of aggression. And we also can identify threat as emanating from the nature of the political leadership. Here the presumption we make is that certain leaders have proclivities for evil. They are just bad. I can't see that. Two minutes? Five. Five. Oh, I have a lot of time.
1: Uh,
0: so here the argument is that certain leaders are by definition <coughs> evil. And so they are threatening because it is in their nation. It is their, in their evil nation. So it, one can even argue that such leaders may not be able to help it they are bad they were born that way they will remain that way so Saddam Hussein would be a good example of this nothing could have changed Saddam Hussein to make him a saintly figure he was born a bad person Hitler was like that you know you could take Hitler to uh, a prayer house and pray for him over a century and he would still remain the evil guy that he was we have the same type of arguments about many African leaders. In Nigeria, Sani Abacha will be viewed by many Nigerians as congenitally evil. You know, it's not the environment that created him, that's just the way he is. He's a blood tyrant, and therefore that's where the threat uh, came from. Uh, a proximity to a source of threat can also heighten awareness about threat. And so, if a state shares border with uh, a foe, then that proximity in itself can heighten threat uh, perception. And threats may be specifically located uh, in a particular uh, place. But also, anniversaries of certain events tend to trigger heightened awareness about threats in us, both as individuals and as nations. Uh, for example, people get heightened awareness about threat on the anniversary of September 11th. And so in that way, the anniversary serves as a reminder of what had taken place in the past, and therefore people become more aware of it. Uh, but interestingly, certain political spectacles and political events can also heighten awareness about threats. And so general elections, for example, where the public's attention is concentrated can serve to increase our awareness about our threat. Uh, interestingly, too, government efforts to counter threats may actually accentuate our awareness of threats. Uh, I'm reminded of this each time I go to the airport and I hear the uh, mechanical announcement uh, the Homeland Security has determined that the threat level is yellow. Oh, I had forgotten about uh, September 11th and terrorism, but then the announcement brings that back up. Now, what is yellow? What is red? What is so by the government trying to reassure me that I'm safe, it actually makes me more afraid. So if the government has determined that the threat level is yellow, what does that mean? Are the terrorists two miles away from the airport are uh, they going to board the aircraft, etc.? So, uh, that type of thing could be counterproductive. Uh, but finally, threats may also be politically manufactured. In other words, it may not be real at all. Political leaders may want to capitalize on the public anxiety generated by false claims about threatening entities or individuals. And we saw this very clearly with allegations that Iraq under Saddam Hussein was intent on acquiring weapons of mass destruction. In fact, several studies have shown that much of the American public bought into the war against Iraq because of the belief that Iraq did possess a weapons of mass destruction. Now, how does the U.S. then perceive a threat in West Africa? There are a number of ways and things happening in West Africa that the US finds are threatening. Failed states. Uh, here, I've already talked about why failed states are considered threatening. Ungoverned, under-governed, misgoverned states are also considered a threats. And these exist uh, in West Africa. Political instabilities in the sub-region, coups, civil wars, ethnic, religious conflicts, etc and several of the previous uh, speakers have already uh, talked about this. Then radical extremist groups, insurgencies, cyber crimes uh, in Nigeria, under the Nigerian Penal Code, uh, to receive something of value from someone uh, under fraud comes under Section 419, and this is known as a 419 crime. And much of this is perpetrated uh, through the internet then the disruption of oil supplies so as far as the geographical space of west africa is concerned these are the events or entities that will be considered a threatening to u.s national security interest i'll conclude Um, although as i've just shown in the previous slide there are many things in West Africa that are considered threatening uh, to U.S. national security <laughs> interests. The important thing here is that these threats are threats first and foremost to West Africans themselves. They are only secondary threats to the United States. The United States is not directly threatened by failed states in West Africa. It may be indirectly threatened by failed states, but West Africans themselves are threatened by failed states. Uh, The United States itself is not directly threatened by political instabilities in the sub-region. West Africans themselves are the first victims of such uh, threats uh, in West Africa. So even though they are recognized by the United States as threats, my argument here is that they are only indirect threats to the United States. They are first and foremost threats to West Africans themselves. Now, even though there are so many threats that the U.S. finds in West Africa, unfortunately for the United States, its ability to sell this to the American public is limited by the fact that the U.S. cannot put a public face to the threat that it faces in West Africa. So West Africa doesn't have a Saddam Hussein that can epitomize all the threats uh, that the U.S. faces in the sub-region. Without this, the idea of selling the notion that West Africa constitutes a threat to the United States is not very credible at the mass level. So my analysis of this is that there is a perception gap between the American elite establishment and the American mass public with respect to West Africa being a source of threat uh, to the United States. At the elite level, there is a recognition about the dangers posed to the U.S. by West Africa. But at the mass level, because it is difficult to put a face uh, to it, because these threats are not seen as direct threats to the United States, it is difficult to sell that idea then finally even though the US does recognize so many threats in West Africa the irony is that the resources the US commits to fighting against these threats are not commensurate with the degree and the scope of the threats. In other words if truly West Africa represents a danger to the United States where is the money? Thank you <laughs>
2: I was not going to stop uh, Peter. For those of you who don't know, his cousin is the former autocrat ruler of Nigeria, <laughs> uh, President Olusegun so, Obasanjo. That's so, question. Question. so that's his the be And before that, I was going to get there. A- okay, so you can see the streak of uh, autocracy, in the way he used the time. Uh, let's bring to the podium Miss Diane Raghel.
3: Today the question I'm going to present today is a U.S. security interest in
4: Western going to have to pick the microphone up, It needs to go
1: up right didn't oh, yeah. yeah. yeah.
3: The U.S. has shown a great interest in Africa and is reflected by the economy. One, the fact that President Obama has visited Africa twice this year, one in Egypt, second in Ghana. Bush and Clinton also visited Africa. President Obama had launched with 25 African leaders in September 2009. Four, the U.S. has increased its military aid to Africa from $100 million to $800 million annually. Five, the Africa, a combatant commission <coughs> of the U.S. military, was created. In 2007, since Secretary of State Clinton visited seven African countries in August 2009, Operation Restore Hope, the humanitarian intervention in Somalia in 1992, U.S. African relations a dramatic departure. These new interests are a dramatic departure from the past. In the past, the US had little or no interest on in Africa. Africa was simply a pawn during the Cold War. The US supported military detectives such as Mokuto Seseko, Samuel Doe, Jonas Savimbi. The US also supported the apartheid rulers of South Africa during the Reagan administration, the policy of constructive engagement. Why the sudden interest? What are the motivating factors? What are the implications for Africa and the US? What are US security interests in West Africa in general, and in West Africa in particular? Are US security interests in Africa the dis- same? as West Africans' own security interests, how then the war on terrorism shaped U.S. security interests in West Africa. There are four factors that help to shape these new policies. One, the end of the Cold War. Two, the anti apartheid movement of the 1980s. Three, the terrorist attack of September 11, 2001. Four, crisis of governments in Africa. At the end of the Cold War, the US no longer needed the so called anti communist leaders such as Kombuchi Sesegu the U.S. discovered new roads in Africa for, for for armed forces, example, the humanitarian intervention in Somalia. Two, the anti-apartheid movement of the 1980s also pushed the U.S. to develop greater interest on Africa. Three, the terrorist attack of September 11, 2001 was a transformative event in US Africa relations made Africa important to US security. Four, crisis of migrants in Africa, such as civil wars, rebellions, refugees, also affected US African relations. What then makes Africa important to the According to Assistant Secretary of the State, John Carson, Africa is important to the U.S. for so many reasons. One, because of the shared history and heritage between Africa and the U.S., two, the U.S. has a fundamental interest in promoting peace and stability, democratic rule, good governance, and sustained economic growth. Africa. Three. Africa is a major trading partner of the U.S. Africa is a major supplier of U.S. hydrocarbon needs. Africa now supplies 21% of U.S. oil imports. Four. Africa has huge economic potentials, such as numerous raw materials and the natural President Obama himself. President Obama also said that Africa was important to the U.S. In his speech in Accra, Ghana, he said that the 21st century will be shaped by what happens in Accra, not just in Moscow, Washington, D.C., and a few other places. Two, Africa's prosperity can expand America's own prosperity. 3. Africa's health and security can contribute to the world health and security. Africa can partner with the US on behalf of the future. Secretary of State, hilary clinton also talked about the importance of Africa to the US. She said that the U.S. will fight against China's efforts to see safe heavens in failed states. And there are many failed states in Africa. Two, the U.S. will help Africa to conserve its natural resources. Three, the U.S. will help to stop war in Congo. Four, America has an interest to end autocracy in Zimbabwe and human devastation in the world. Five, U.S. will support democracies in Africa. Six, America will work to reach the Millennium Development Goals. Seven, Africa is key to U.S. and global energy security. Regarding U.S. security interests, the 2008 U.S. defense strategy identifies the following as major U.S. security threats: one, violent transnational instrument networks; two, hostile states armed with weapons of mass destruction; three, rising regional powers; four, spars. Space and cyber threats 5. Natural and pandemic disasters 6. Competition for resources 7. Inability of states to police themselves effectively 8. Insurgencies 9. ungoverned undergoverned, misgoverned and contested areas. Ten local regional conflicts. All these are traits Only number two and number three are not part of. Is not applicable to Africa because there is nothing like that. It has never been existed. Oil. oil is the major U.S. security interest in West Africa. Africa, oil is crucial to America. One, there's a growing U.S. dependence on oil imports. Two, the Middle East is politically unstable. Three, it is easy for U.S. oil tankers to get to West Africa. Four, China is in competition with the U.S. over oil. Five, West Africa has become a major producer of crude oil. Six, West Africa has substantial reserves of oil and gas. For example, Nigeria has 35.9 billion barrels. Angola has 5.4 billion barrels. In oil markets, Angola is part of West Africa. Gabon has 2.7 billion barrels. In 2007, Africa supplied 21% of U.S. petroleum imports. Western Hemisphere, 49%. Middle East, 16%. Other, 14%. Terrorism. Is another major U.S. security interest in West Africa? Islamic fundamentalism is viewed by the U.S. as a security threat. West Africa has, a, West Africa has a huge Muslim population. Two, West Africa has many ungoverned, misgoverned, under the governed spaces. Sahel has its important. Three. US is afraid that Islamic extremists are coming from North Africa to West Africa. Four, there are already radical extremists in parts of West Africa, like in Mali, Mauritania, Nigeria, example, Boko Haram. Challenges the following are some of the challenges to U.S. security interests in West Africa. One, insurgency in oil-producing areas. For instance, movement for the emancipation of the Niger Delta and other militant groups in the Niger Delta. Two, West Africans do not get much benefit from oil production. So satisfying US demand. The oil is not necessary for the interest of ordinary citizens in West Africa. 3. Oil production in West Africa destroys the environment. The more oil that is produced, the higher the scope of destruction of the environment. 4. Increased production not be in the long-term interest of West Africans since this will lead to a rapid nutrition of oil. For example, Nigeria has only 38 years left. Angola, 11 years. Average for the nine producers, 26 years. What happens to these countries when the oil is gone? The US spheres of Islamic fundamentalism in West Africa are based on the belief that West African Muslim mm-hmm. are amenable to Islamic radicalism. Is this necessary? To define its security interests in West Africa, the U.S. has entered into secre- security partnerships with West African states. Many of these states are weak, <coughs> corrupt, and incompetent. Muslim uprisings in West Africa are rooted in local grievances, such as corruption, poverty, injustice, U.S. military aid to leaders in West Africa may be used to increase their repressive capacities. Why do you not to enhance their abilities to govern? Let me conclude by raising a number of issues. The U.S best defend its security interests in West Africa in partnership with West Africans. U.S. interests in West Africa cannot be pursued contrary to the West African and security of West Africans themselves. Three, the United States can also enhance its security interests in West Africa by walking through ECOWAS and other regional organizations in sub-region. Finally, the United States should not attend to protect its security interests in West Africa at the expense of the West Africa.
2: Thank you very much, uh, Mr. Um Our last paper for the day is by Sylvester Odeon, who will speak on civil-military relations, West Africa in the wake of U.S. war on terror. Sylvester. Ladies and
5: gentlemen, I don't know how to crack jokes. But uh, let me say this, when I was connecting from New York to Columbus yesterday, uh, my seat number was 17 a uh, in the aircraft, we the airplane. And I was the last, uh, I sat at the very back of the plane. And there were two members of the cabin crew uh, <coughs> over in my front. And uh, one of them came and said and told, the two gentlemen uh, told them that they should sit behind me rather and demonstrated by saying kew, kew,
1: kew. <laughs>
5: so and the pressure I got is that although I was not hooded I was wearing my jacket and with a, a black hat anyway and I said, do I look like in Jahedin?
1: <laughs>
5: <laughs> so uh, that is actually an gospel of fear, you know which uh, the war on terrorism, you know, has created, you know. So, and I think that the United States will need to deal with that internal here first. Well, my my topic is um, U.S. war on terror, and it's in part on civil military relations. Uh, in my presentation, definitely it will overlap with some expressions, concepts, and statements that have been made by previous speakers. But of course, I want to make, first and foremost, a few introductory remarks. One, to say that the new direction of conflict in the 21st century was something that leading U.S. scholars sketched you know, uh, Zalazar talked about horizon sketch- sketching. And I think Hodgerton talked about the clash of civilization, you know, in which the probably the predictable conflict between the West, um, probably the, uh, you know, the perversity will be between liberalism and Islamic fundamentalism. I, I think to Robert Kaplan, Are there the nuance when it talks about resource scarcity, you know, as something that would possibly contribute also to crisis in the 21st uh, century. Then beyond that, the war on terror had been falling September 9-11. You know, also provided a basis for the expression of uh u.s uh, philosophical you know matrix uh, the, so, uh, the, the, the concept of you know democratic peace you know uh, an expansion of the kantian notion of uh, you know democratic peace uh, philosophy in which you know democracies do not make war but, you know, against each other of course uh if you if you really work of fiber and uh, goa, you know they have also differentiated between what they call common interest and common politics. You know, in which case, uh, and the very concept of you know maybe democracies don't make war against each other was, uh, of course, you know, validated by the dynamics of the Cold War. You know, in which of course the world or countries of the world were markedly divided. You know, along whether you are in support of the Soviets. For of the Americans, you know. So I mean, that alliance dynamics shaped, you know, um, or give some validity to that concept of, uh, you know, uh, you know, democracies of war, make war against, uh, you know, each other. Then the other point to make is also the fact that it's been said here several times that African has enormous resources, you know, uh, hydrocarbon. Is just one of them, you know. And somebody put it as 30% of the global, you know, uh, resources. But well, I'm not quite sure, I think, even years back, before the, the turn of the century, uh, Kisiga, there was a Kissinger report, I'm not quite sure about what it's on there, what Africa contained about two tons of the global resources that the world will need to survive in the twenty-first century, you know. And so, if you put that in place, it therefore means that, if people talk about the second scramble you know, for Africa, or the second valley,
6: uh you know, to a very large extent, uh, extent is
5: also justifiable. The other point to make is that, the current war on terror also has a historical parallel, you know, in the post-World War II foreign policy of the United States. you know, Which is that, when the U.S. was ready to secure you know, the global environment for our own survival. Then secondly, to curtail you know, our communism you know, during that period. But I think uh, William Robinson did an interesting paper, which uh, you know, is quite interesting, in which he said he revealed that an addendum to that U.S. foreign policy was also the fact that whether the Soviet threat was there or not, U.S. was going to, of course, secure her interest in terms of access to global resources. So I think that we need to look at the erode of the Americans into West Africa, which has been capped by the African command also in that perspective. To come back to the paper, my objective is to show that the U.S. erode, of course, into West Africa in terms of militarization, you know, uh, to protect her energy interest will of course affect civil military relations. And you can look at at that in two ways. One is that the the character of government or or structures of government in Africa or West Africa, you know, uh, do not change. Then it therefore means that Militarization will only entrench you know the kind of autocrats that you have had in Africa, or those who who, who even within the context of quasi democracy, you know, do ask for a tall term or even you know, a false term. And so the implication of that is that the civil society is not all the time docile. So which means that we're gonna fight the civil society will fight such regimes, and the regime will sort To the new amount they are acquiring from such deal from uh, US military assistance and all that against the civil population. That is one possibility. Of course, if you regard the role of the US into West Africa as a militarization project, then it is likely going to, not likely, it will engender a security dilemma. Uh, Because when I listen to, uh, read through the testimony of General Ward to the Congress, you know, when we classified in a lot of countries, including Russia and China, as within the area of responsibility of Africa, you know, which is, of course, to deter those other so far as the U.S. interest is concerned. So it is also possible that West Africa, or Africa for that matter, will become the real theater, you know, for a new hegemonic struggle between the rising powers from the East, you know. And, and the West, so that that is there. Then, then the last very important point is what I call the convergence of interest between the present, you know, state elites in Africa or the ruling classes, and the U.S. you know uh, security project in West Africa. Of course, you will call that. Africa was under, you know, uh, last-scale neutralization in terms of military rule for a very long time. And therefore, when the new democratic regimes, in court, you know, were put in place, they all had security, you know, concerns. I, I do remember very well when the NPR first came into Nigeria, you know, there was a lot of resentment. But of course, in my private interaction with a few of, one of the staff, it was clear that what they wanted, maybe that was to the briefing they had from the Ulushev Pumabas and origin that just came to power, was how to restructure the Nigerian army because largely within the context of the crisis in Nigeria at the time, we regarded the Nigerian army as, as an ethnic army. I was among those who regarded it so because I was in the democracy movement. It was an ethnic army. And so the army needed to, you know, to be uh, reformed uh, reform in such a way that it would be national. So they also expressed you know, that concern in our discussion. Of course, that was the concern of those who just took power from you know, for, uh, from the military in Nigeria at the time. Because if you remember, what Obasanjo did when he came to power was to retire the so-called political officers who did in Nigeria and think it was done in 1999, shortly after he was sworn in, then two years after, I don't know about 200 plus you know, we also retired, you know, from the military. So, and General Peter Malu, who eventually, of course, objected to some of the activities of NPR, of course, made the point that uh, part of the reason why NPRI was in Nigeria was to help reprofessionalize the Nigerian army. You know, so that tells you the convergence of interest at that level. Oh, before I go too far, let me make the point that. I'll be drawing most of my examples from Senegal, Nigeria, and Ghana. Uh, I chose Senegal you know, because it's a French-speaking country and to contrast you know, with the other two West Africa countries. And I, I do know, if i take taking Nigeria as the only case, as we do say, since uh, it's, the, it's the regional head it has a lot to give in terms of generalizations. You know, but of course, I'm dealing with those three countries. Now, if you look at Ghana similarly, uh, when before was won in, in two thousand after the two thousand after the two thousand and one after the two thousand elections, you know, uh, the new elites were living under the shadow of the revolution. In quote, the all always years, you know, always on the stage in Ghana for over two decades that it was almost competing with Colonel crewman in terms of, uh, you know, uh, uh, public uh, acknowledgement. Some I don't want to use the word reputation. Because
1: uh, Ukuman has claimed, you know, the, the of the final national status under the current, uh, you know, mis uh,
5: regime. Now, Kufor talked about securing the state, you know, as part of his concern, and I think uh, Jokir used the word uh, regime security. And I think that is that is basically what it was, you know, not securing the state. What it did was to also require some of the key military officers, you know, uh, under General, those who served under, under Chairman Rollins. He brought in uh, General Hamidu, you know, as um, national security advisor, you know, scrapped the 64 battalion, which was of you know, some special forces uh, for Rollins. you know, and then uh, they then set up the post, post-transition National Reconciliation Commission, you know, in Ghana. I, I visited Ghana during that period, and for what, Observing the section, I think that Kufor was out to stigmatize Runners and to, you know, whittle down his popularity and reputation, you know, within Ghana. Which uh, was basically why Fireman and Yabo, those who looked at, you know, the security policies of the regime, concluded that though you could place some of those policies within an institutional framework, you can't talk about them in terms of institutional, you know, sense. It doesn't make you know, anything, uh, because the guy was not pressing the human problem. Poverty is still right in Ghana. And you know, uh, Ghana is heavily externally oriented in terms of uh, its economy and all that. So that was Kufour's you know, approach to it. Mm-hmm. Now, there was another security concern also in Ghana during the period. The oil find in the western province, the Tano Basin, you know, also engendered new security concerns, you know, for that country in terms of maritime, you know, uh, security, and the maritime authority was not in a position to protect even that western province in you know, in terms of, uh, you know, oil security and all that. And unless you have to, you know, uh, reform the Navy or expand this mandate to be able to do that, the Ghanaian maritime authority will not do that. So that was a security need and let me go to Senegal so that you can see the core items, you know, of, of interest when war came in uh, after the alternance in 2000 you know, there was also a security uh, need of course Senegal was lucky that the pattern of civil military relations in, in Senegal was uh, what I call um, you know it was I don't know whether to use the word Benign but well, I think that Senegal has a lot to show because Senghor, uh, Senghor did what we call a graduated opening of the political space in Senegal. You know, 1974 he legalized you know, political parties. I think about two on ideological lines: some uh, you know left wingers, you know some uh, you know uh, cent, uh, center of the of the right or you whatever, know, right of center. You have them there. Then 1981, you know, it handed over power to produce, you know, almost voluntarily, you know. So that again moderated the kind of
6: resistance
5: you, you had in other countries like in Nigeria and the rest of the world. We have to set up radio groups, you know, and some other several organizations, you know, to combat the general Batcher, you know, regime in Nigeria. So you have that kind of thing in uh, in Senegal. But then, one of the main concerns was the separatist movement in the Casamance, you know. Uh, it was there and uh, Abdul didn't quite resolve that. And you know they have always regarded it as a, you know, a peace, a law and all that kind of thing for them, uh, without addressing the autonomy question for the Casamance. And the neighboring country, like the Southern the South, the South Emirates and Mauritania, you know, even, even, even Gambia are all involved without measures, you know, in terms of assistance to the MD, MD, MDFC, the movement of the um, local forces of Casamance. So that was there, and so when he came in, part of his preoccupation was restoring peace to Casamance within weeks, and he did actually solicit for arms, you know, from from uh, from France, you know, and uh, a few other countries. So there was also a security concern, you know. Uh, on the part of, on the part of uh, a blind Wad, you know, to change, you know, the security structure in such a way as to secure, you know, uh, itself. The one other point that needs need to be made about Senegal is also what I call the Murid, the Murid veto, you know, the Murid uh, Muslims, you know, in you, you know, have a moderating influence because for a very long time, you know, they, they, they were like. Holding the balance in terms of the election, the electoral process there, and you needed the support of the Burundian, you know, to swing the electoral, you know, fortune, and they required Gouya to do go all to And I think that because the way the French were, all, I mean, absolutely paternalistic to do for change, I think that one also needed to shop for a balance, which is why I talked about. Uh, you know, looking at civil military relations there is between cyber and Chinese sort of, you know. And uh, General Ward, you know, uh, also on that when he made the point that, of course, the French will still be there, you know, uh, culturally and all that. But of course, I, I think in terms of military influence now, the U.S. is uh, quite on the ground, you know. And uh, the, the Office of Defense Corporation,
1: the U.S. Embassy in Dakar, you know, uh, handles much of
5: uh, the military, you know, cooperation in um, in Dakar. So, since the War on Terror, there have been various, of course, uh, military activities. In that, there the international military education, you know, uh, program, uh, training program is there. Of course, the Fasara counterterrorism, which is of course the update but the point also make is that before 2000 and, uh, 2000 and in 2001, September 11, 1996, the idea of an African Response Force, you know, was already uh, being toyed with, you know, by Pentagon, the State Department, and all of that. And I remember that uh, during that period, general 1996, General Abacha was, uh, was you know, contracted about African Response, you know, Force, and uh, he was he, he opposed it. You know, it didn't quite match uh, uh, nice the idea. But the other point to make is that even as we have African, there is still a late, uh, latent opposition to it in uh, in countries of West Africa. Uh, I remember during George Bush's visit, Kufour, because of the pressure from the civil society in was forced to ask President uh, Bush what African was all about. You know. But the, but the, truth, the point to make is that the African project, you know, uh, securing US energy interests in West Africa has led to militarization already. Uh I mean Ghana has become one of the leading parts, as they say. And, and I, I, I think to Senegal is also one of the leading parts. Uh you have three uh bases in Ghana in a Bodase, and what they call it uh, Exercise, uh, you know, uh, f- facilities, you know, for for the U.S. military. Then, uh, Tamale Airport, which is also strategic, has been taken over by the Americans. And uh, two U.S. warplane, you know, uh, flew to, uh, from Kotoka Airport and virtually, uh, you know, uh, uh, grounded the the airport on the day they did that. And some journalists will tell you they scrambled. You know the Maris, uh, you know, programs on their televisions. So the point I am making is that there's already, of course, you know, uh, a militarization by what the US has done between 2001, you know, to, de- uh, to date, and so uh, it is going to have, you know, a serious partners in terms of, you know, uh, civil-military relations because it's an important post-transition project in West Africa, and so. The militarization process which is going on through AFRICOM, you know, and other military training programs uh, has accentuated, you know, uh, the the role of the military, you know, the balance. Because when you talk about that, you know, to the point of some conceptual reflection, the note upon which I went. When we talk about civil military relations, largely in scholarly discourse, there is um, you know, uh, what I would call a, an inclination to emphasize civil, civilian, uh, you know, control, civilian government control of of the military in terms of shape, shaping the defense policies, you know, foreign policies, you know, and uh, even doctrinal policies, you know, of the, of the army. That's one fundamental point. But of course, again, when we do that, in the context of West Africa, we're also making a mistake because the first condition, what I call first-tier conditionality for stability and democracy, or to use uh, Zakaria's you know, terms, the, the triangle of stability has virtually not been resolved. You know, in Nigeria the ethnic question is still very much, uh, you know, much there. It has not been resolved, and part of it is what you see play itself out in the Nigeria data, you know, I talked
2: about the Kasamase. Thank you, Sylvester, and just to briefly recap, uh, Peter talked with us about threat and threat perception, uh, the general discussions in terms of United States' uh, assessment of uh, threats globally, and more specifically the threats that are coming to United States from West Africa, and concluded that if the threat from West Africa is not all that significant, to United States, but it is most significant to West Africans. Diane talked about the various positions, uh, American personnel, specifically the President, the Secretary of State, and a number of other individuals have expressed United States interest and the importance of Africa in that context. And how the various express uh, U.S. interest in Africa to questions of oil also stick to one of the major issues we have been discussing, which is the problem uh, of poverty, social economic problem. We end with a look at the comparative nature of Senegal, Ghana, and Nigeria in terms of civil-military relations and how that impacts questions of security, and more specifically, the fact that without reforming The state itself, issues of civil-military relations are unlikely to be resolved to the benefit of West Africans. Indeed, he concludes that uh, civil-military, that politics, uh, our civil-military relations within West Africa is already militarized, based on the activities that have been going on since 2001 to present. Uh, It is open for dialogue. We have approximately 45 minutes. Questions.
7: I'll get my hand up. I'm learning. (laughs) Um, Ma'am, you can help me work through this and uh, I'll you, sir. I have my notes in front of me, but, you know, we talk about the balance uh, or the militarization of West Africa or militarization, period. Um, And I think that uh, when we look at the militarization, we need to look at the phenomena that's occurred between uh, the rise in funding for DOD and the reduction of funding for USAID Uh, USCID was still working off the 1960s um, pattern of work effort. Um, Slowly over the years, their money was reduced uh, until eventually it became a point of being an ineffectual, not an ineffectual organization, but a severely hampered organization. However, at the same time, we look at the asymmetric rise uh, of problems with terrorist activities, uh, the criminal, all the other things we talked about. And so as the military conducted operations in support of the... The different theaters that we were working in, um, there was no misunderstanding. The military I realized the the benefits for conducting military, civic action, uh, medical, civic action, uh, humanitarian, civic action, um, while working in the field to support the people, to increase the security in the areas where the working units were working. You know, over the years, one of the things that have happened is when we, in the military. Uh, under the Defense Security Cooperation or a um, DSCA I might have a blank. Defense Security DSCA Cooperation Cooperation Cooperation. 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 So that's the organization that provides money for civic action of all types uh, DOD excess property. And so these are the tools that uh, were traditionally used by the military. However, they call that the DOD uh, HA department, which so the HA means that it's, there's only one government organization who has the mandate to conduct humanitarian assistance, that is USAID, bar none. Period. Um, and so that became an internal argument, and when you had issues like the Liberia came up, where the military main job is to restore the security to allow the NGOs to conduct operations to mitigate uh, the medical, depth of the medical problem. Anyways, what has happened over the years in a nutshell is DOD humanitarian uh, civic action type programs have been on the rise. Also, through the DSCA program, uh, we're allowed to conduct uh, infrastructure building to a certain extent of schools, roads, things of this nature. And all that's supposed to come under the purview uh, of, uh, of USAID. However, the SIX Initiative program. Overseas, it hasn't always done that, so what we see is that military on the rise, USAID uh, going down, however their workload going up because of the problems and still having to provide oversight. And I think that's what you're going to see in the future, is this rectified because it has been a, uh, over, the, over the last five, six years, trying to figure out how to conduct interagency operations for this whole-of-government approach for doing business. And we haven't got it right yet. You see in our area, West Africa, the, the TSCTI, the Trans-Saharan Counterterrorism Initiative, then the Trans-Saharan Counterterrorism Partnership. This nested with Operation Enduring Freedom, Trans-Saharan, which began with pro- the pan Sahel Initiative. Well, the pan Initiative so many years ago, which the goal was to, um, to develop capacities In Mali, Niger, Chad, to mitigate 21st century security threats. And that, my friends, was a long time ago. And where are we today? We have just fielded equipment into Mali, just fielded equipment once again. And after how many years? So you see that there's the problems within our own. Um, structures of getting the work done trying to do the right thing Um, and then also to build relationships with the military once again if we see something as Americans and we all are here all are Americans those who have an American passport (laughs) and Americans like to help and Americans force help and we continue to say, hey, this is the problem, and this is what we would see would be good for you. And somewhere along the line, that help has becomes a, a level of arrogance, the American arrogance. So in the end, when the Department of State and the Department of Defense get it right, you're going to see a tapering off of the militarization. And you should sure. see a rise in... USAID conducting programs as they have in the past. So, empirically, you will support the argument that uh, if, uh, as the saying goes, if you follow the money,
2: the conclusion can be fairly stated that
1: there is militarization
2: of uh, US politics in West Africa?
7: I see. I think that what you'll see is the if you look at demilitarization, I wouldn't say demilitarization because AFRICOM Midi- Midi-
4: Midi- I'm sorry uh,
7: AFRICOM we talk about civil military relations as Diane pointed out in all the numbers she threw is this not a new command that's reaching out for civil military relations trying to determine in all the years back to PSI what is the right way to empower our, our brothers and partners on the ground and mitigate their own threats. To be able to train their own mechanics, make their own vehicle run, fix their own problems. And I think that in the future, what you'll see is that more programs, less programs that are small unit training, shooting, counterterrorism, and probably more programs of how do you fix logistical problems? How do you train the mechanics? These type of things.
2: Thank you. Any responses from the presenters? Do you want to respond to the next Sebastian, did you see the NP uh, RI document out of
7: the uh, Return on Investment?
2: Yeah, uh, the War College. This, did you have access to it? No. Okay. I wish cool. why, why? You know, one thing, the was a part of it, that's one uh, i Is that, I'm sure you can speak to it, right? Uh, was that? Demilitarization or remilitarization, especially there was it was a two-part agreement or document in, in two phases. The second one,
8: NPRI mm-hmm. actually didn't perform what it was meant to. Perform. Okay, and that was simply because there were a lot of voices the military was split Mm -hmm. And the senior hierarchy, the high hierarchy of the military was seriously anxious. He mentioned it the other time. The former staff for example, no way, I don't Mm -hmm. want it. And at the end of the day, what they were doing was really very good. But the problem is suspicion.
1: Mm -hmm.
8: Are these people coming in for genuine reasons? What exactly do they want? Are they coming in to spy? Let me use that rude language. What exactly do they want? And once, there was no answers. They were not supported. That was the problem. So they they came, they organized a couple of uh, uh, symposiums and conferences in big hotels and they invited military officers
7: to come. But the One caveat, i is I don't want everyone to think that the Pants of Hell initiative was not successful, because it did have one combat success, and that was that the Nigerians ran Alpara across the border into Chad, and Alpara was the leader, one of the higher ranking leaders of the GSPC, former runner to AQIM. And that showed at that time those military forces on the ground that they had reached an objective of being able to communicate and conduct cross border operations to mitigate threats in their area.
2: Thanks. Okay. A response to that? No, no, that's okay. Okay. Uh Clement and then Jandar. Okay. Thanks a lot, Mr. Jen. I have a problem. I am giving a statistic here. I'm always following because I'm learning
9: to come for of sure, course, and this is, um, somehow, we've seen an increase in US money in recent times of growing a deal to about 800 million. And, and I, I just want to put this out here to the, uh, the generals here. I'm always shocked what I hear this because, um, A, because it's an enormous amount of, um, Boyer said that Africa has seen what's called dollars to Uh, people will run away with that. A $2 in this room will cause an earthquake, where in Africa is a billion dollar. Can anybody show me that? How how do you guys really account for this? Is it the cost of Secretary Fuerza going to Africa with a team and hanging out at a shopping or is it it, you know, military hardware that is dropped, you know, in in Ghana? I mean, just a question of accounting just to to make sense of these figures. the the, the question I, I want to I'm coming back to Junius' concern in the last panel about the focus of this, this meeting, and I think your point about the unfinished business of, of, of nation building in Africa really is a dramatic issue. that right? I think Peter is onto something as well, and that is the issue of how do you put a for Americans to so the problem of West Africa, why, why, or Africa? Why should America care? And I, I, I think it's one of the major reasons why we're here, and we would have failed if we did address that one way or the other. I think the, uh, the, the existing form of what is conception is what America should care about Africa for humanitarian reasons. So, what do you see in Safari? The picture of the machinated African who needs help. Please give us a dollar. So that humanitarian conception It doesn't send us very well. Not only is he intrinsically very humiliating, quite frankly, Mm -hmm. um, but it's it's profoundly synchronizing. And and, and so then the the, the, the opposite of that is strategy. Well, this is the question I really have, and I support that that's the essence of my paper, we move towards strategy. The the, the issue is, okay, well, oil. America has a huge appetite for African oil, and so on, that's a bad thing. Is American interest in oil more than the uh, African government's interest in oil? And what's wrong with that? If, if, if somehow the American public is told the reason we have to be in Africa is this oil. Right. Um, so it raises a fundamental question for me, and I say this <coughs> <it's quite coughs> because when we're right invited to these meeting, the smaller meetings, it affords us an opportunity to be more truthful. Than, for instance, if I were attending ESA or IPSA, the air comments are not going to be. There. Yeah. What are Africans really? To bear for an American focus and interest in Africa that is growing with terrorism. Can I offer? <coughs> I
8: think we discussed this issue this morning. I asked two questions. One of them, the second was the writer to the first one. And the question was this When are we going to start doing things that way? Number two, we have. Being the architect of our failure in Africa, when are we going to rebut that? Until we're able to do that, what is concerned about remain. Really People complain all the time that because the white man came to Africa, they did, they did that, so we cannot move forward. And you address that in the morning adequately. We cannot move forward. And they say, no. We've grown. It's no longer. 1500 years ago, it's a new world. Africa has enough human and material resources to take care of itself. And let me tell you another thing I don't really buy into people saying that the big world will come and oppress Africa and they will get this, and Muslims and all that. I say, no. If you put your house right, if you do what you're supposed to do, if you have good leadership, if you let corruption go to the drains, people will respect you first. And secondly, they will not be able to impose anything on you. I can guarantee you that. For example, tomorrow I'm going to have a presentation. Nigeria says, no, we don't want Africa. South Africa says, no, we don't want Africa.
0: What's going to happen?
2: I'll let Peter comment before
0: move on. you really, really a very serious issue. And that's, that's why the last three comments the concluding part I was trying to throw this as a challenge. The United States can identify threats to its security interests in West Africa and other parts of the continent. But to me, all those threats are first and foremost threats to Africans themselves. And Diane also, in her paper, raised the issue of U.S. interest in African oil. What, from the US perspective, would be the ideal thing with respect to African oil? Well, for African oil producers to produce as much oil as possible and as cheaply as possible. Mm-hmm. But would that be the interest of Africans?
10: And large access to that.
0: Oil. And, and large like access to it. Right. And, and, and that's the, the point she was raising. Okay, we have a situation, as she pointed out, Nigeria has at the current rate of production, that the left. Now, if the situation in the Niger Delta is resolved, Nigeria has the capacity to virtually double its current production. Mm-hmm. So now you reduce that at the ATA to 14 years. Mm-hmm. And she raised the question. So yeah. what happens to these countries when the oil is gone? So it is in the interest of the U.S. now to get as much oil as possible out of Africa and as cheaply as possible. But also let's look at it from the American perspective. During the election campaign, President Obama campaigned on the ground that he's going to make us energy independent. Mm-hmm. So what that mean for Africa? If we want to sell our oil to a country that is trying to say, ah uh-uh, ah, we don't want to be dependent on on your oil anymore. We want to be independent. That's right. The Chinese will
1: be dependent. Right?
0: Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. So that. The, the, the issue is not for us as Africans to address American interests for the Americans. The Americans can tell us whatever their interests are. If they are not compatible with us, we say no. If it is compatible, then we say, let's sit down and negotiate
1: and,
7: mm-hmm. and derive mutual benefit from this. That's that's the way I look at it. You know, this reminds me, if you look at the, and I'll, I'll be very quick, if you're going to a village and you say, how does the village need to... to um, function, and it has to have a, a market, and the market has to develop things, and people have to develop things, maybe sell them, to fit their own needs. So if, as you said, if it's a market, if someone gives you the capacity to execute and to run your own market, and the world comes to you and says, I'd like to buy what you have, so be it.
0: Yeah, but also, when well, you didn't have to raise it the, reason for the issue, why would, why should Africa countries sell crude oil? Why can't African countries
8: sell petroleum? We
2: don't have the technology, like we have to develop it and it will take some time. Okay, I need to come changed. back, I need to come back to this side, so that uh, we can take the, those who have behaved themselves, be <laughs> acknowledged, so that uh, no interventions. I'll get to you, I'll, I'll get to you as, as soon as I hear from Jenda. I, I promise you Andrea, you'll be the next.
6: Sorry. Uh, no, I wanted to uh, just wanted to add, um, I mean, you would ask about the issue of um, you know the funding and the militarization and um, it may be true that USAID's funding has gone down relative to DOD, but DOD's funding has gone up because of Iraq and Afghanistan. And so if you just look at those numbers in broad terms, it's going to be out of whack. Moreover, a lot of the assistance that we provide is going to another. Entity the MCC instead of USAID, as well as to the global health, you know, instead of the PEPFAR program instead of USAID. So you can't just take those numbers and absolute and say there's been of this and a, you know. Um, secondly, I don't even know what the term militarization means. Um, I would say that our policy over the last year has been a healthization, you know, of of uh, of Africa because we s- invested far more money and effort and energy actually. In health than we have in in security, which is to your point, Peter. But where's the money? If, if it's such a big deal, where is the money? Um, and you know, so it, it, but it's less visible, right? Because it's it's pushed out through other organizations. You don't have a person with the USAID badge coming out and saying, you know, here's money. It's world. It's the World Vision. And it's this NGO and that NGO and this local government and this you know, in local entities. And so that money's pushed to other parties, but it's U.S. money, you know, which has become an issue which the U.S. is saying we need to brand, you know, our, our projects, because nobody knows that this NGO, that's the Catholic Relief Services, which is doing all this great work, is actually U.S. money. So, you know, if you actually look at it, uh, in terms of the, the investment over the last eight years, the biggest investment has been in health, the security investment has been much less. Now, that said, any time you create a new institution, it's a point of departure, right? But the same stuff that AFRICOM was doing, UCOM was doing, and CINCOM was doing, and PAYCOM was doing, you know? But when you put it under one flame and then you have to sell it and talk about it, all of a sudden people are like, something different is happening here, right? Something different is happening. One, they're doing what they've always done, plus they've got a lot more resources because of the the uh, Afghanistan, Iraq, the global war on terror, and so there's a lot more visibility of you know people like him, you know, in uniforms who've got computers in our embassies doing information campaigns, right? I mean, there's, they're just more visible. Uh, but it's not. I, 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 I take exception to this notion just automatically that that is somehow a militarization because put in the context of everything else. It may actually not be such a big spot. points.
2: Thank
6: you. Andrea? Uh, well, I'd like to give an example. Um,
10: I think that there are more resources, though, now going to these types of activities in Africa. Um, I was very lucky to actually go with the DeSoto down to Mali last year, November of 2008, to attend Operation Alpha. Um And the military was doing a number of planned medical capabilities activities. in. Uh, medical capabilities exercises in both Senegal and Mali. Um, they realized, once they were down there, that there was a large amount of supplies, that medical supplies, that had been left over from operations over the summer, and they decided to hold another um, exercise, or medical capabilities exercise um, right outside of Bamako, which, um, right outside the Air Force base, which, with a local clinic, and distributed and donated about $275,000 worth of medical supplies um The participants in the clinic were most of, that attended that day were mostly families and wives of the uh, airport base and the Air Force. And at the end of the day they ended up donating the majority of those supplies to just that clinic. So to me that raises the issue of um, that's a lot of money to be giving to one clinic that's right off of the Air Force base um, that's only. Uh, that's mainly meeting the needs of military personnel. Um, Now that effort or exercise to donate that plan should have gone through the country team of of the country, the embassy, should have been approved, should have fit into the larger plan. Um, But the question that that raises, who, who is making those decisions locally on the ground? Is it the military? Um, are they qualified and capable to be selecting for that large of an amount of money? Um, would aid, had they been given $275,000 worth of medical supplies, would aid have decided that um, you know, one clinic? Um, now the military will come back and say the need is so great, and aid will come back and say the aid is so great you know, we have a limited time and resources to do this. Um, but I think it's
7: I can't really I mean, I, that was part of the operation. My really, guys did, and I think part of that was donated. There was a. Civil affairs guys are always leveraging the system to make things happen. You know, this is the military civic and ba- action stuff. And uh, basically, what we did is we ended up getting a lot of medical supplies from the from uh, NGOs in the states, and then distributing them. Um, however. One thing is that when a uh, DSCA program or a MEDCAP is done, that money has to go through and, and it has to be validated by the USAID director in the area where it's going and to make sure that, that doesn't, it doesn't mitigate a USAID program or it doesn't interdict a program. However, one thing that Andrea is correct on is that the military guys will tell you we're not long-term solutions. We're a short-term, rapid solution and we're conducting uh, uh, issues on the ground to work with the people to help them and to understand the situations better. And generally the concept is that if you understand the people, if you help the people, then when the times get hard, then somebody's going to come to you and say, you know what, that guy down the road is going to come and rock at the compound tonight or has intentions or he's the smuggler or whatever. Um, you know. But um, the thing also is that remember that OEFTS is a special operations force program, and the motto of the special operations command is "the quiet professionals." And they won't. We don't publicize all the things that we do. Uh, the two years that I worked with the special forces, in medicine alone, over nine hundred thousand dollars in medicine it was with doctors. There were special operations doctors that flew into flew into um, Mauritania, Mali, Niger, and also to Chad. He conducted full-blown medical programs in places beyond Timbuktu.
2: I'll result in my... a sales question. Yes, yes. Uh,
4: General Russo. Well, I, I've learned three things from uh, the final panel. One I've known for a long time is the whole notion of AFRICOM is poorly articulated. Instead of going to African states, African partners, Talking them through the concept of an AFRICOM. We declared an AFRICOM and then we went to African States and tried to sell it. Bad policy. Bad policy. AFRICOM is not a combatant command like other commands. It's quite different. And I would suggest that we have a. We need to do it better. <coughs> but much better job of explaining and articulating what an AFRICOM is because, Sylvester, you're kind of off the mark in my view. The fact that two jets disturb some people is not militarization of a continent. And, you know, it's kind of cheap shit. Right? The other thing i like to leave you with is, for years, my African friends would tell me that the United States doesn't care about Africa and they would use the example that, well, you have a PACOM, you have a you know, you have all these combatant commands around the world, but you don't even think about Africa. And then, of course, when we do have a combatant command for Africa to bring the continent into the same sphere as other continents, other then we get this, Sylvester, we get your, it's militarization, and it's,
6: you know. So,
4: seriously, you, you kind of can't have it both ways. You can't have it both ways. My view is we've given Africa, finally, we're giving Africa the attention that it requires, needs, and deserves. AFRICOM is a mechanism to do that, that we are comfortable with culturally, organizationally, and our security architecture. Granted, we've sold it poorly. And, and to this day, I haven't sold it correctly. But I can almost guarantee but the notion of this African is not for the militarization of the African continent, Or the se- another term I use, the securitization of the African economy. <clears throat> is oil important? Of course. It's not important just to the United States. It's important to China, soon India. You're going to have a lot of people looking for African oil for <coughs> I think uh,
2: I saw Jindai I disagree with the first part oh, of your I, comments.
6: I, I disagree and agree. I agree 100% that it was sold poorly. I disagree that it was that we just decided on it and then and then tried to sell it because part of the selling it poorly was as we were designing it, we the DOD with State Department people were flying around Africa asking about what do you think about this concept and the the, the slides would change at every stop based on input and then people got nervous saying, wait a minute, you said this this day and now it looks like something else, which created a lot of distrust. And so we had learned from Opry, you know, where we did develop it and then tried to sell it and we actually went and talked to people, but then we did it wrong still. I mean, we, 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 and you know, the whole thing about Ghana and Kufour, no one asked Kufour to base AFRICOM in in Ghana. No one. And so it was quite surprising when President Bush showed up there and he started saying, we won't have AFRICOM. We're like, did anyone ask you? But it was domestic politics. I mean, he was dealing with his domestic politics, which then made it look like President Bush was on his trip to go around and try to get a base for AFRICOM. So I, 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 I agree with part of it. Um, but I do think that there was a lot of consultation, but the consultation actually undermined, because of the way it was done, they just kept repackaging and repackaging and repackaging. They didn't have a clear vi- vision and still don't have a clear vision, you know, with this new command. Right, if you take,
10: if you take the, uh, the rollout on the continent aside, and you just look at the major conferences that were going on in the United States and you had your aid official or your State Department and your defense, I mean, each or treasury, I mean, there were all different kinds of interagency personnel getting up there and saying, this is what we're going to do in this new AFRICOM and, you know, this new interagency idea. So I think that internationally in the news media, I mean, this got totally out of control. I mean, take aside the disagreements over the lack of communication or input that was taken from
2: you know. mm-hmm. Thank you. Professor, I you had your hands up.
10: No, one here not.
2: Uh, prepared, let me just—we okay. are coming. We are getting closer. This is—I I would like a reaction from, especially uh, those affiliated with the uh, defense um, uh, establishment. Uh, Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for African Affairs Teresa well in February 2008, uh, in talking about Africa, says, "Put Africa is not about oil." but about access to African resources through the markets. That the threat of state failure underpins US strategy and that military security is but one element of stability. That American security policy has evolved to recognize state failure as a major threat in post-9-11 environment. This strategic underpinning of the new approach to African security did not exist a decade ago. So, from uh, a public statement by someone in the know says, Africa is not about oil, but it's about getting the oil to the international market. Uh, what's the difference between both the access
0: and free market trade? Free market trade. Of <laughs> yeah, course, one conceptualization was that it was designed, particularly like in this argument of West Africa made, was designed to enable the U.S. Marines and the Navy to seize West African oil. <laughs> right. So I think she must have been differentiating between that perception that the U.S. would use its armed forces <laughs> as an instrument to seize the oil versus creating an enabling of for, for the
7: oil to be private and well, this is what it like. It like Little rumor. <laughs> have you ever known for the U.S. military to go in and seize oil fields and pump them out of the barges and <laughs> take them home and put them in the Corvettes? I have. Uh, it seems like wherever we go, we spend so much money creating false economies by paying more than what it's worth. And yeah, what during the
0: 1973 oil embargo, they were in position paper was probably later on how to seize oil fields in the Middle East. Uh-huh. And the case in that sense, people became very sensitive. Mr. Right. Yes, Jeff, but,
9: but this is what is so troubling about this discussion. Where is the outrage when African leaders watch their people and watch their parents? I mean, just as let's assume that, okay, what was said is true, U.S. wants access to money. Where is the tax? Can they write it down? That the Nigerian government has an insatiable appetite for oil, that the Angolan government, government has an insatiable appetite for oil. In their own terms, mm-hmm. no land is sacred, no people are sacred. Where is the angst? But in an angst that, oh, American maybe wants to uh, create a channel to use West after I, I, I think that is essentially my point. That, that what are we as Africans? And I say this well, something, because at ABS, I'm what not going to say. This is a smaller conference. We have this honest book, okay? So, what are we willing really as advocates to take for moving the debate about American engagement in our society from the humanitarian to the strategy? And, and it's a question we have to answer at some point. Or oh, this one idea becomes meaningless.
2: I have my, my take, Professor. And there it comes um. Since uh, we went back to the question of we
11: Africans, uh, and I regard myself as one of the we Africans, I think we need to rethink the issue of who the we Africans are and how we are engaging. Uh, The movement for the uh, emancipation of Niger Delta are we Africans. They've been engaging, they've been fighting because nobody was listening to them. Uh, There are issues all over the place that people fight as we Africans and keep articulating their own viewpoints by arms when everything else fails in terms of security and in terms of access to the market or not. One thing I found missing in all our discussions today is the issue of, I've only had the idea of ruling class came up once, and that was in Sylvester, I think it was Sylvester who brought that up. The issue of who are the we Africans? Which class? Who are we talking about? On whose behalf are we acting? Why is the oil not being pumped in Nigeria? Why 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 is there oil scarcity in Nigeria? Who 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 distributes what? Who gets what? So when we speak of we Africans, we need to differentiate on who are the we Africans and who is, who is getting what. Africans are fighting. They are doing that. We scholars in at OSU are not saying something the way we want it to be said. Doesn't mean that Africans are not doing it. Some Africans are actually fighting. I'm speaking.
2: Thank
1: you. Sman. So, no. I think uh, I, want to that I don't
12: know what you have That uh, What I perceive as an African is
1: that the real trade is the political disaster, the leadership.
8: The African leadership is the one problem the situation in the state way. the extremism being in the
12: So we should be readdressing more so the problem of the problem ship. the,
8: the So look at yourself
12: in around the problem. We've been talking a lot about the factors, the group, the type of treatment. By you know, down line a little bit the real problem is the, the African leadership. Very poor African relationship. We say that roughly we have about six, five, six, let's say ten functional states. But
7: when I think what do you mean by function? Functional state people, the the state which which has a social
12: contract with the citizens, but they will all the needed good to security that job or high. The remaining are classified either either semi-functional, fairly or shallow state, or even
1: fairly state as in the case of TRC and
12: The
2: issue issue of African leadership is no doubt extremely important. But how about the followership? How about the people who are being led? I mean, we need to think about that. If we take the data with regard to sub-Saharan Africa, this is the leadership here. We are part of the elite. We're talking about the ruling class you are part of the ruling class. You are part of the elite. And fair. <laughs> <laughs> so, what role? What responsibility for the followers who dance, welcome, celebrate the autocrats, the rogues, the human, the human rights abusers that we all repugnantly not want to be associated with. How about the ordinary people? Isn't there a responsibility?
13: Well, there is. But the Father was he describing to that because, as I suggested in my presentation, because of the nature of the states that we have. If control of the state does not only simply means political power, but it provides a means to accumulation, which is what the state is. Then that's why you have that kind of followership because you got to dance to the music <laughs> of the faction that you're control the state so that you can accumulate wealth. I think it was someone, who, I think it was Ufman who said you could become a billionaire overnight. Yeah, basically. But, so if you if you if so to change that dynamic, you got you know, and again as I was suggested, reconstituting the state is not simply an academic exercise. I mean, it can be done in a practical way, and what that means is that citizens at the grassroots level, we're basically similar to what happened in the 1990s, but I think we missed an opportunity when the whole concept of the Southern National Conference came about. And I'm saying we missed the opportunity because those seven National Conferences focused basically on political liberalization and power sharing. I think it was a great opportunity to revamp fundamentally transform the whole post-colonial state, we need to go back to that and push that agenda much further. So
2: what, what is the role of those in the diaspora? Given that those entrapped within the governed, misgoverned, and the governed spaces are psychologically, economically weak, no we on that What's the role of those the
13: in the diaspora? Is, the, the diaspora is not a monolithic group, as you know. The the diaspora, just like those on the continent, are divided along where the alliances are. So, is that a a monolithic group? Some of the people who pose the greatest dangers to peace and security in Africa are in the diaspora. Also, what we have
1: to
0: take into consideration, and and I share your concern about the fact that the followership in Africa is not exactly its strength. but what you have to take into consideration is that within the logic in which the followers exist, they have to act on the basis of short term interest. And so, for example, if you tell people when politicians come to bribe you to vote for them, don't vote for them because they are going to misuse the power. What what sense does it make an ordinary person who is hungry, for whom five dollar bribe Will ensure food on his table maybe for the next three days, and you tell him wait five years from now everything will be fine. What's five years for him? The three days are more important than five years. So whether he will have manna from heaven in five years, it's not as important to him as if he can have food on his table for the next three days for him and his family. I had a practical experience. Wait, wait.
2: Uh, I want to, your question, your comment to bring this back in terms of the followers with regard to questions of threat and threat perception. Yes.
1: Yeah, actually
8: I intended to sit here and say nothing until, uh, uh, until uh, tomorrow. Okay. But uh, I really have to take exception to what you said about mm-hmm. uh, us being part of the ruling elite. I <laughs> certainly do not belong to the ruling elite. I don't know, I don't know about uh, the others here, but uh, I have to say that uh, uh, the ruling elite in most of our countries are a, a small bunch that I don't want uh,
1: to I have spent most of my life fighting that ruling elite uh,
8: and I subscribe with all that was said earlier by the and also by, by Peter uh, uh, actually I see myself as a counter uh, ruling elite uh, okay. uh, so just leave it at that and maybe uh, tomorrow I'll elaborate on
11: Okay, <laughs> now the
1: counter-edits. Um, yes, Julius. Well, uh, uh, okay.
12: uh, I, I think the, the the question here, the fundamental question is the question of democracy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what you're talking about. Um, uh, but w- w- we have to understand that politics and power is about struggle. Um, the gentleman just uh, noted that uh, the people in the Delta region were not just sleeping and letting the folks uh, uh, exploit them. You know, they, they have resisted, they have taken up mm-hmm. arms. We may not agree with the tactics, we may do a bunch of things, but uh, at least there is an expression of struggle. But because it is struggle, we have also understand that the state uh, and the ruling elements have tried very hard to <coughs> demobilize the population, to, to demobilize civil society. And one of the biggest questions in Zimbabwe is uh, what, what has it been? It's, it's the muzzling of civil society by Mugabe and the and all kinds of terrible things that have happened. So the issue then becomes, you know, if you're going, if you're going to ask the, the question, what is next, what needs to be done, uh, and and what is the outside world supposed to do? And as a matter of fact, what is U.S. foreign policy supposed to do? Well, I remember, you know, talking to Jendai five six years ago when she was uh, trying to talk to Abu Dhabi. At one point, Jendai said, well, maybe we should be talking. To uh, because you know we're done he's not listening uh, I, I didn't agree with that position because I think we had to engage him and maybe at some point push him over uh, but, the, but the point being that uh, by, uh, by by giving space to civil society maybe civil society will be able to act uh, and push him over and we can begin uh, a, a new process that would allow for the kind of democratization that we need so so I, I think fundamentally uh, you know what we're talking about here is, we need to understand the fundamental nature of struggle, political struggles and, and what power means. Because if you don't understand power, we won't be able to understand why uh, all these terrible poverty levels exist. Uh, if you don't understand power, then you won't, you won't be able to understand you know, why we have uh, the, the, the $300 billion leaving Africa every year. To other places, and yet people continue to be poor. So, uh, you know, for me, I think those are the key questions and, and, and points of interaction that needs to be flagged for us to understand the process. So, is it the case? And I would like
2: comments from the presenters' closing comments. Is it the case then that uh, the African masses have not suffered enough for them to actually decide to resist and change the environmental structure? Uh, that they find themselves, yeah.
5: in. Yeah, two comments. One will be a response to the fact that uh, uh, s- s- some members of the audience do not agree with my conclusion. It's to reinforce the fact that in my presentation uh, is uh, also based on history and that you can do a comparative analysis with US foreign policy individualist, you know, with regard to the post war policy, the primary plan, Whether it is activated at the moment in Africa or not, you know, the possibility does exist that you know that will happen you know, uh, in the near future. But of course on the grant, uh, Nigeria benefited from the 1206 article, twelve oh six article uh for ish gone vote you know which was central in Nigeria better and the rhythm, you know, uh, of the American government. is you that know, the Nigerian better militants are criminal gangs. I, I, I listen to people here talking about three categories of, you know, elements who are involved in the Nigerian, you know, uh, those who have uh, political, political talks, you know, genuine militants, you know, and all that. But if you look at the criminal activities in the Nigeria, it has spread across the country. kidnapping takes place in, in the Kaduna yeah. 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 state yeah. and yeah. all of the Eastern, Eastern yeah. you know, province. So, that is also based on a, a historical region of the Nigerian attack crisis. It started with a militarization by Isaac who led a seven-day war against uh, the Nigerian state. Then it went into a period of, you know, peaceful protest, writing of points, you know, uh Kesarua was involved in that, and he was taken a hand. You know, And the return to Siboru gave opportunities to the young men in the data to arm to arm themselves because in nineteen ninety eight there was a declaration called the Kayama Declaration, where the youths resolved that they were going to you know take over their resources with any means necessary. You know, and the politicians politician provided an opportunity and they armed themselves substantially. And that was you know how the armament came about. But right now we're talking about demobilization disarmament. You know, uh, that is not going to resolve the problem unless the issues are fundamentally resolved in that part of the country. Uh, what that means is that the military have years for you to Nigeria. In fact, I, I delivered a paper recently in Africa.
6: Well, of course, you know uh, the special training, you know, uh, the special uh, special forces training that some officers, elements uh, of
5: the Nigerian navy had, you know, from the US. You know, uh, military. That was basically activated. You know, there was a, a, a joint military exercise before the bombardment of Paramakino. You, you know, and uh, that was all in the news. And the boys were ready to go. Wire anyway, destroy all the other uh, installations. And so the Nigerian government came up with an amnesty program. You know, and sending all kinds of uh, emigres to back the boys. Well, now on the surface there is an disarmament. but how far that are go, I don't know. And that goes on. If you go to Ghana, security is still there by like the military. You know, you drive through the, the traffic, you know, without respect. The day before yesterday, before I left Lagos, a military guy shot, just a civilian guy, you know, blow up his head. You sure. know, so these things are going on. What I'm saying is that whether the armament used to this government is benign or you know, to support their military, but of course, in the context of the present counterpart in the African states or states in Africa, they are likely to use it against the civil population, and to that extent, it represents a measure of militarization. That's a point. Then we point on the civil society. Uh, uh, I was opportune to to been the secretary general of the, of the <coughs> in Nigeria during the military period, and I will tell you that you know, uh, mobilizing the people. When you talk about the masses, the masses don't lead themselves, you have to mobilise them. You know, they don't I mean you have to, you know, jack up their consciousness to a certain level that they will know that a regime represents a threat. Otherwise, first and foremost in the African context their primary preoccupation is how to think out a living on a daily basis. And that's why you find that the informal setup it's uh, the largest, uh, you know, setup uh, in West African states. People trading on a daily basis, you know, to survive. And so there has to be issues, you know, you have to substantially polarize issues to be able to mobilize them. And don't also forget that there are other intervening factors. When you begin mobilization, you know, ethnicity is played on, and the rest of them. So your the uh you know, nationality begins
2: to see the other as a problem, and all that. Okay, it does happen. Thank you, Peter. Final
0: comment? Any? Uh, well, I thought you, you asked a specific question. Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. Um, I, I think the question is, uh, is whether the African masses are, are not uh, oppressed enough. Uh, again, as you said, you have to look at it within, within the logic in which people operate. It It creates incentives for short-term reaction, but also for some African states, there is an appearance that if you go along, you are much better off than trying to be in the opposition. Uh, and, and so, in that context, people then operate on the basis of expectations of what they will get if they cooperate with the government rather than opposing the government. And so, that type of short-term perspective. Uses particular kinds of behavior. It doesn't have anything to do with whether Africans are blogging for punishment. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just the context in which they operate. Uh, can, can I respond uh, to very quickly? Okay. Uh, yes. Yeah. Right? Uh, I made a distinction among those three groups, uh, recognizing that the second group, the criminal elements, are able to operate within a context in which the state itself becomes a criminal enterprise. And so when that happens, you can no longer geographically limit criminal activities to say the Niger Delta. They have to spread everywhere. Uh, and also, we have to take into consideration, the military was deployed to the Niger Delta. What is it for the, some of those military officers who are operating in the Niger Delta? How will the amnesty affect their ability to privately appropriate much of the resources that they are now using in Nigeria? So, those are some of
1: the questions Thank you. Dan? Very, very quickly.
2: over. Okay. You want me to answer? <laughs> okay. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's been a pleasure having uh, this last panel. Uh, I hope that you sleep well. I hope that you eat well because we have sumptuous dinner for you. God, but before we leave, before we leave, let me share something for you in response to Diane's question. In a small town, in a village, in West Africa, there is this old man who was known to have all the answers to every problem. And so this old man one day was going to be proven to be wrong. A young man who had grown up decided this wise old man couldn't know the answers to everything. So he was going to prove the man wrong. What he did a priori was to catch a small bird. The young man decided, I'm going to call the community together and put this little bird in my palm. And I'll ask the old man, old man, please tell me, is the bird in my palm alive or dead? If the old man said it was alive, he was going to crush it and open his palm and say, old man, you see, you don't know the answers to everything. And if the old man said, the bird in your palm is dead, he was going to open his palm, it will fly away. And so perfecting his game, he called the community together as we have gathered here today and said, Wise old man, please do tell me, tell the community, is the bird in my palm alive or dead? The old man sat by and leaned forward and said, Young man, the answers you seek are in your palm.
1: <laughs> it's up to you,
2: and I'll tell you the same thing. Whether Africa transitions out of humanitarian perceptions, out of ungoverned, misgoverned spaces,
1: are in your hands. Thank you very much.